Dan Johnson, ladies and gentlemen. Will Brown, ladies and gentlemen. Well, good morning. I want to begin today by asking you to imagine Jesus is like a nine-year-old boy. He's in his home village of Nazareth. He and a group of his friends are playing in the streets. They're playing all different kinds of games. And it's one of those things where you get so swept up in what you're doing that time seems to to melt away, that you forget what time it is. And because it's a Friday afternoon and as the sun is lowering um, in the sky, all of a sudden they all realize that it's the Sabbath and they all immediately need to get home. So they all say goodbye and they rush off to their homes. Jesus has the farthest to run in order to get to his home and where they live. And so he is running at a breakneck speed. He's sprinting and he can feel the heart pounding in his chest and the sun's getting lower and lower and he's got to make it back before the sun goes down. And he makes it through the door of the house right as the sun is getting ready to kiss the horizon. And as soon as he gets in the house, he notices that the family is all gathered around the table as they would be on a Friday evening and that Jesus' mother gives him a look that only a mother can give, which is, you know, you were cutting it kind of close there, mister. And so Jesus tries to still his heart as his mom takes the candle that's in their home and she lights it and in lighting it, they begin to recite the prayer that they have said their whole life long, one of the most familiar prayers to them besides the Shema. We thank you, God, for commanding us to light the Sabbath candle. Once they say that prayer together, Joseph, Jesus' father, places his hands on Jesus and offers him a blessing. Son, may you have the strength of Samson. May you have the wisdom of Solomon. May you have the courage of Joshua. May you have the heart of David. May you have the forgiveness and the grace, he says with a wink, of Joseph. And then turning to the other family members, Joseph offers a blessing to all of them. They pray together, and at the end of all of those prayers, they exclaim and celebrate, and Joseph says, Shabbat Shalom, and the rest of the family says, oh my gosh, I worked so hard on that, and that was such a Presbyterian response. I need, I need a little more Yiddish, Jewish kind of response, so think Mazel Tov, think something like that, Shabbat Shalom. Much better, for it really is the peace of the Sabbath, the beginning of finding wholeness in the midst of rest. And it all begins by lighting a candle, not just any candle, the candle of Sabbath. We're in the midst of a series of messages where we're talking about grace habits. We're trying to become a more grace-filled people. These are the qualities that we want to become. We want to become more grateful, more available, more curious, and more encouraging. And we're doing kind of four little mini-series on each of these topics. So we talked about four weeks on how do we become more grateful instead of entitled as God's people. And then right now we're in the midst of talking about what does it mean to become more available, and what are the little things that we can do that yield a huge reward? What little subtle changes and 
behavior or in mindset can we make and almost make some of these things second nature. And so if we want to become more available, last week we talked about how in today's day and age we're going to have to learn how to turn off our technology, that we cannot become smartphone zombies and be available to God and available to the people around us. And today we're talking about lighting a candle to not just squeeze what we can out of time, but to mark time in a whole different way. Sabbath is one of the most ancient of practices of our faith. It comes from the word, the verb Shabbat, which means to stop, to cease, to quit. Sabbath is not so much something you do, but something that you don't do. And you might wonder where Sabbath comes from. Well, it actually comes from the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments comes in two different places for us. The one that we're most familiar with is Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Notice in the midst of this that Sabbath is not just a you and God thing, but it pertains to the whole community. It, in fact, it pertains to people who don't even reside within your community. It's, it's, it's a complete kind of rest. Wherever you are on the economic spectrum or the age spectrum, Sabbath applies to you. And then it goes on to say this, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And on the seventh day, he rested. God took a personal day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. And he made it holy. And hearkening back to where this comes from, it goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis. And in the great song of creation that God creates out of nothing and declares it to be good and good and good. And then it's declared when he makes us that we're very good because we reflect his image. But the first thing that God calls holy is a day. A holy place will come, but it's going to come later. A holy people are going to come, but it's going to be later. The first thing that God sanctifies, the first thing that God hallows, the first thing that God sets aside for another kind of use is a day. This is why a rabbi by the name of Avraham Heschel says that the Sabbath is the Jewish cathedral. That at first, God's people didn't so much worship in a place but in a moment of time that woven into the very fabric of the creation that God has given to us is this idea that we set aside a day in order to celebrate, to remember, and to rest in God's gracious promises. And it has been said that the Sabbath has kept God's people more than the people have kept the Sabbath. And so in Exodus, it points all the way back to Genesis. The Ten Commandments comes to us in two different places in the Old Testament. There's an echo, there's a refrain of the Ten Commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, and the command is still the same, to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. But what's interesting is that there's an emphasis on a different justification, that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, 
It says to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then it says this, the remember that you were slaves in Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So the rationale is not so much about being woven into the fabric of creation. The rationale for the Sabbath day, according to the book of Deuteronomy, is that there was a time when you were not allowed to permit, that you weren't allowed to participate in the Sabbath. And that's when you were slaves. And so one day a week, as a reminder, as a commemoration, no making of bricks without straw. One day a week, no taskmasters without whips. One day a week, no being determined by what you're doing. You and I are no longer slaves, and we should never allow anything to ensnare us and to own us and a part of what it means to declare our independence is to set aside some time in order to mark it as holy before God. Now, like all good religious practices, if you're not careful, something as meant to be a blessing and a gift of grace like the Sabbath is, You can turn any religious practice or any spiritual discipline into a burden. And by the time you fast forward to the time of Jesus, did you know that there were 1,521 different ways to break the Sabbath during the lifetime of Jesus? That it was like the hot topic, it was the most controversial thing during the lifetime of Jesus was the Sabbath day. And so Jesus came in that moment of time and he he affirmed the Sabbath, but he also reframed the discussion. Jesus did controversial things like heal on the Sabbath. And he would say things like this, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That in many ways that what they had done is that the tail had started to wag the dog and that they had made the Sabbath the end into itself as opposed to Sabbath, like all spiritual disciplines, being a means to an end, to entering into God's presence and and being a part of celebrating in who God is. But my guess is, is that you're not the kind of person that's overly legalistic with the Sabbath. That's just a guess on my part. And what's interesting is that there is a company that does this Sabbath thing really well. Do you know what company that I might be referring to? It is this company right here. And before we go to lunch a little later, I just want us to meditate spiritually (laughs) upon what we're looking at here and just kind of take in the chicken nuggets and the sandwich and the, oh my gosh, when the waffle fries are fresh and they have just the right amount of salt on them. How are you guys doing right now? No, right? Like we can't go to Chick-fil-A today because they're closed on Sunday. Because for them, they want every avenue of their organization to experience time with their families, to experience a rejuvenation cycle and rest. But you know they're not legalistic about this, right? Do you remember the time that was kind of embarrassing that not that long ago that the Atlanta airport lost power? Do you know who some of the first responders with food were in the Atlanta airport, even though it was a Sunday? It was Chick-fil-A. Even though it was a Sunday, and for them, Sunday is a day of rest, there's 
a time to heal on the Sabbath. There's a time to care, to activate, because the Sabbath is for us, not us for the Sabbath. I wish I could, I wish I could tell you that I am as good at Sabbath as Chick-fil-A is, but I'm not. For me, it's a lot of fits and starts. I would, last week when I was working on the message, um, I was so convicted by my inadequacy to stand before you and to talk about Sabbath with my own rhythms of life that I made sure that I took a day off last week and took Friday off because I felt like I'm a complete hypocrite standing up talking to you about this. So why, why don't we stop? Why do we just keep running in the hamster wheel of life? Well, the first reason that we don't stop is, is that busyness is a status symbol for us. Have you ever noticed when you ask somebody, how are you doing, uh, that like the most common answer today is like, oh man, I'm busy. And it's almost like a little badge of honor, right? Like it's almost a little contest of, you know, who's the busiest in that moment because our busyness tells us that we're important. Our busyness tells us that we're significant. Our busyness tells us that we matter. And so we're afraid to not be busy and to show people that we don't have something to do because of what it says about us. Second reason that we don't stop and get off the treadmill is that we're addicted to adrenaline. I mean, social scientists, uh, even pharmacologists are telling us that um, our hippocampus in our brain is actually shrinking because of the amount of adrenaline and stimulation that we are addicted to in the way that we pack our days. And uh, as one scholar put a book, the title of his book, he says, we're, we're thrilled to death. Even our vacations are filled with adrenaline junkie kinds of moments. We, we can't wait to have the next hit of what we're supposed to accomplish or adventure that we're supposed to experience. And so for us, busyness is a status symbol. We're addicted to adrenaline, and we also choose leisure over peace. One of the reasons that I am so grateful for the symbol of the candle in helping us to understand the Sabbath is that the symbol of fire is the symbol of God's presence. Let me be very clear that the Sabbath is not meant to be just a relaxation day, that there's more to it than that, that there's a recognition of, of God's presence in, in your life, that it's not just about recreation, it's about recreation. In fact, Gordon McDonald says that, he, he says that, that kind of just filling your Sabbath with leisure is akin to needing a really good meal and only eating cotton candy. It'll give you some calories, but it's not what you need to sustain you. Filling your life with more leisure isn't going to help. And so the next reason that we don't stop is, is that restlessness has become a norm for us. Every ad, every marketing campaign, every social media push all has as its origin an attempt to make you restless in order to make you consume something, buy something, or do something. 
And so one of the challenges of today is that the restlessness quotient just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. And for me, the most important reason of why I don't stop is that we don't like limits. The fastest way to get me to do something is to tell me what I can't do. And I don't know if you're the same way, but the root of that problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where we weren't content with being in God's image or being like God. We wanted to wrestle control away from God. We wanted to become God. And as a result, we want to live without there being any limits. And the natural result of all of this, as Albert Schweitzer once wisely said, is that if your soul has no Sunday, it will become an orphan. Eventually, without Sabbath, we lose our souls. And so I want you to turn to somebody next to you, and I want you to to try to answer this question. When, When was a time, one of the last times that you felt deeply rested. Turn to somebody next to you and answer that question. One of, the times, one of the times where I felt deeply rested, honestly, was like four or five years ago. And uh, it was a Saturday afternoon. I, I got, got home from a run, and, um, and I was going to have to preach at a Saturday night service. And so I was changing clothes and showering up to get ready. And, um, and all of a sudden, I noticed in the mirror that through my abdominal cavity... I had a tennis-sized kind of protuberance coming out of me. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is that? And I, I'm screaming for Kelly to come upstairs. Kelly was pre-med. She kind of cocks her head. She looks at it, and she's like, that's a hernia, and you're going to the hospital. I'm like, that's not a hernia, and I'm not going to the hospital. I'll go to the clinic. I'll get it looked at. She's like, okay, suit yourself. So I drove myself to the clinic, and um, I'm like, Doc, I got to preach in a couple of hours. Um, what's, what's this? And she cocks her head and she goes, that's a hernia and I'm going to need to take you to the hospital. I'm like, dang it, I'm hurt and my wife is right. <laughs> and so um, I'm like, well, what do I do about that? And she's like, you need to go to the hospital. And I'm like, I'm not going to the hospital. I got to preach in a couple of hours. And she's like, you got to be careful with that because that one, that one can, can get worse. I'm like, I'll be fine. And uh, so, so I, I preach that weekend. I earned some serious street cred with the congregation. It's a little awkward with something, you know, sticking out of me and kind of that thing. But um, the, uh, uh, have the surgery, and we're getting the post-operative instructions, double inguinal hernia surgery. I've got Kevlar in here, baby. And, um, and, the, and the doctor's like, okay, for, for 60 days... You cannot lift anything bigger than a gallon of milk. (laughs) That's funny. A whole, like, two months not picking up anything heavier than a gallon of milk. And he's like, yep. 
And I'm like, well, first of all, is a golf club heavier than a gallon of milk? And, and so I have to completely reorient my schedule, how I exercise, how I do anything, and I enter into this forced rest. A little over a month into, um, into the recovery, um, Kelly and I fly here. We're actually leading a, a group of people into Greece and to Turkey, and we fly into Istanbul. And I mean, we're gone for two weeks. At some point, we're in mountains, and other places, we're by the water. And so we have these massive suitcases that, I mean, it's got everything in it. It is 49 and a half pounds out of 50 pounds. And my wife's got one, and I've got one. And the bags are coming around the turnstile, and I, I, can't, I can't pick it up, right? Like, I'm following the instructions because he warned me. He's like, you'll be back in here. You'd be surprised how many times I have to redo the surgery because people don't listen to it. And so my little five foot two, barely 100 pounds wife, there's all these Muslim men in Istanbul hanging around the turnstile. All the rest of the women are hanging, not my wife. She's front and center, and she's like, lifting these huge bags and putting them down and all of the all of the men are like pointing at her and pointing at me and looking at me shamefully and talking in Arabic and I'm like I had double inguinal hernia pal which I don't think translated into Arabic in a way that that I thought it would and um and so I'm like you know what I'm getting defensive with this I should just lean into this right and so we're walking through the Istanbul airport. I'm like, honey, walk three paces behind me with the suitcases. <laughs> and I remember her pulling those suitcases. And she's like, as soon as you recover, I'm going to hurt you and destroy you. <laughs> but it was, a, it was a total change for me. There was this change of rhythm. There was this rest, this new rhythm that was thrust upon me. You know how it says in Psalm 23, he, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures? That's what that was like. God had to make me do that. One lawyer put it this way. He said, I began Sabbathing out of necessity. My health depended upon it. Now I Sabbath as a way to understand my salvation. My soul depends on it. When I stop working, I have to admit that the world doesn't depend on me. Sabbath helps me to see how small I am in the deep stillness of habitual Sabbath. The truth of the world begins to sink in. You are not necessary. That's the beauty of grace. You probably didn't think that this was going to be the good news when you came to church this morning, but I'm here to tell you in the name of Jesus Christ that you are not necessary. That your work was here before you got here and that your work will be here when you are done. And just because we're not necessary doesn't mean that we're not significant. We're cherished, we're loved, we're valued, we're prized. But the minute that you and I have put ourselves at the center of our own little universes is the recognition of that we've become big and God has become small. And so the father of our church tradition, the theological grandfather of the Presbyterian Church, John Calvin, he put it best. He says, on the Sabbath, we cease our work so that God can do his work in us. And let me be really frank. Some of the times that I don't Sabbath, it's because I'm a little afraid 
of the work that God needs to do in Rich Condorcher. And I run from that. When I went through my forced little time of Sabbath because of injury, I decided to put a scripture at the heart of, of that time. And it's this scripture. It says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that salvation is found in your rest? I mean, that's the nature of grace. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't attain it. It's a gift. But you and I are running around like chickens with our head cut off. And, and so we miss it. You probably are familiar with this guy. His name's William Wilberforce. He was a significant figure in Parliament in the 19th century, and he was the seminal individual who was able to finally push through the legislation for the abolishment of slavery in the British Empire. So you might be familiar with his story and the fact that it took over two decades of him persisting in order for that to happen. And but the part that amazed me was discovering how often William Wilberforce wanted to give up. And that one of the things that regularly brought him back was the practice of Sabbath. He put this, he wrote it like this. He said, blessed be to God for the day of rest and for the religious occupation therein where earthly things assume their true size. When we fail to Sabbath, things grow disproportionately out of control and we end up on a collision course. It wasn't that long after the Titanic disaster that there was another shipwreck off of the coast of the Atlantic, this one closer to home. This one involved two ships. It was the Nantucket and the Monroe. The Nantucket ran into the Monroe and so everybody's assumption was that kind of the Nantucket was at fault. But after they did the investigation, they discovered actually that, that it was actually the Monroe's fault. That after they interviewed the crew and the captain and after they grieved the loss of the 41 lives that had died, they discovered that the captain of the Monroe had an old compass that he had neglected and had never calibrated. And so a little by little every year, that compass lost a little bit of its accuracy towards true north. And that the primary reason there was a collision is because it was way off course. You and I can keep running our lives, but without Sabbath, we won't calibrate to the grace and the goodness of God and eventually we'll be off course and we're headed for tragedy. And so the invitation that I have for you today is a simple act 
to light a candle. In Jesus' day and age, this is what a candle would have looked like. A little oil lamp. This is actually a, a first century lamp that was excavated in Israel. And there was probably a family in Israel. We don't know their names, but they probably gathered around a little oil lamp like this, and they lit it on a Friday night. And instead of trying to squeeze everything out of time, they marked time. And they said, this is a time that we set aside for the presence of Almighty God. If God rested, even though he doesn't need to, how arrogant of me to think that I don't need to. And the scripture that I would like to thrust into the middle of this invitation of lighting a candle and marking time are these words from Isaiah. If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride and triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. If you don't hear anything, hear this. The Sabbath is not so much a rule to be obeyed as it is an inheritance to claim. To triumph in the heights of the land. To find your joy in the Lord. And to feast on the legacy of our forefathers. And so let's pray. We thank you, God, for the incredible blessing of what it means to stop, to quit, to cease, and to find some peace. You've woven this fabric all the way back in the dawn of time. It's the workshop of eternity. It is the cathedral of our worship. We thank you, God, that we are no longer slaves, that our identity is found in you and you alone. And so forgive us for our busyness, our addiction to adrenaline, our choice of leisure over rest. And Lord, forgive us for the fact that we don't like limits. Be near the person who is internally tired right now and whose soul has become an orphan. Help us to discover that in rest and repentance is our salvation and enable us to calibrate our lives, not only according to your law, but according to the inheritance that you have in store for your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name.